Welcome to the New Ventures podcast. We have a very special guest today. His name is Ken Hickson, and I know him for a few years. Ken is a native of New Zealand and came to Singapore in the early 1980s to work for Singapore Airlines as a consultant in their public relations department. He went on to set up his own public relations company in Singapore. And at some point, we will learn more about this in our podcast, of course, his interest turned towards sustainability. He was instrumental in helping WWF set up office in Singapore. Ken is also a published author. His first book on sustainability, The ABC of Carbon was published in 2009 and is all about the issues and opportunities in the global climate change environment. And his second book, The Race for Sustainability was published in October, 2013. Obviously, both topics are still extremely relevant. A very warm welcome to you, Ken. Thank you, Sanjoy. Ken, let's start on a personal note. What got you interested in the sustainability space and kept you hooked ever since? You're asking me to go back to my childhood, I suppose, where I had an upbringing in a small country town in New Zealand. I spent a lot of time on my uncle's farm, working on, on uh, fruit farms uh, in my holidays, uh, very close to nature. And I think uh, climbing trees and doing lots of things outside uh, interests me greatly. So I think that was a start. And I think also our, our parents uh, were very environmentally conscious, even if they didn't admit it. They were always concerned about you know, leaving lights on and, and wasting electricity. And, uh, and we dealt with waste in a very uh, sustainable way way um, so, and we had gardens and grew our own food so really my upbringing was was very conscious of the importance of the environment of the land of trees of, of nature and I suppose that was a, a major start to it and I suppose you know the, the first job I had was as a journalist uh, working on a newspaper and I, I remember there was one particular story I wrote um, which was interesting and that was when I, I came back from a weekend on my uncle's farm and we'd been picking uh, mushrooms on the farm, which grew, of course, wild, but they were very tasty and, and not poisonous in any way. And I remember writing a story to say, you know, mushrooms, uh, we should be doing something about mushrooms to help feed, feed the, the many people in the world who needed good protein, good food. And then it was amazing. A few years later, I ended up working for one of the largest humanitarian organizations in the world. It was the Freedom from Hunger campaign, which was part of... Uh, FAO, uh, and while my the emphasis of my work there was related more to perhaps food production and feeding people who were starving around the world, it also made me very conscious of the environment, uh, of water, of, of growing rice uh, to feed more people. And I remember I, I produced a poster at the time, uh, Water is Life, and, and there was a story about the importance of water. So again, I suppose there were some environmental messages in there. Then uh, when I also worked uh, for a few years on a, on a science program on television in New Zealand. And I, I know that I personally favored doing stories that had a relevance to the Antarctic. I spent a month uh, in the Antarctic and on the environment in general, working on the science program. And I remember one particular case where I was taken by a helicopter. The US forces there had a, provided transport logistics 
and this helicopter dropped us down on a very remote location to do some filming and to interview a scientist. And one of the, the crew on the uh, helicopter, we got off and we were alongside this lake bed and he was having a cigarette and then he threw the butt on the ground. And I said to him, what have you done? And he looked at me as though, Who, who's this person telling me about what I'm doing? And I, I said, you've thrown a cigarette butt on the ground. This is a very pristine environment. This is a place that we're probably, it's probably the first time a helicopter has landed here for a start. And it's the first time anyone has filmed anything here as to the importance of the environment. So he very reluctantly and sheepishly bent down and picked up his cigarette butt and made sure it was out and put it in his pocket. So that's some of the things that I suppose have, have influenced me over the years. Fantastic, Ken. Ken, tell us a little bit about what you did in Singapore. You know, you're bringing WWF in. Those are big achievements, right? Besides the, the, the PR company, which I ran, uh, and we did have some good clients like um, BMW. We did a lot of work for DHL. We did work for various Singapore agencies. Um, and that was really the, the PR component, but making sure even the communications on behalf of companies or organizations and people like WWF that were able to achieve something for them. And with WWF, which was really done as a NGO, as a, as a pro bono client, uh, we actually made some significant changes that uh, meant the government in Singapore changed the law to enable an NGO like WWF to operate in Singapore, to conduct fundraising, to conduct awareness building, educational programs. Up until that time, and this would have been, let's say by 1994, no NGO, no charitable organization other than Singaporean organizations were able to operate, fundraise, et cetera, in Singapore. So we actually, talking to key people like Tommy Coe and Simon Tay, were able to get the law changed so WWF could set up legitimately and, and do their work in Singapore, even though they weren't funding any projects in Singapore, they were raising money often to spend outside of Singapore, and that was legitimized. So we actually started the ball rolling. Now I think there are 150 or so NGOs operating out of Singapore, thanks to us getting things started. Fantastic. And obviously, over the years, you have spent a lot of time in Singapore looking at the Singaporean market. You know, one of the things anybody thinks about Singapore is the urban, densely populated, very built up environment. So tell us a little bit about building efficiency industry in Singapore. You know, buildings are a major consumer of electricity and a source of emissions. Uh, obviously, you've worked with a lot of companies in the building energy efficiency area. Sure. And certainly in the last, and I should explain that, that I, I stayed in Singapore um, for, for 17 years. We we. I sold my PR company at the end of 2000 and decided to go and live in Australia for a few years. And I came back to Singapore in, in 2010 and set up my sustainability consultancy then. And I was convinced that the time was right. And this was after I'd produced my the ABC of Carbon. And straight away, I started getting involved with energy efficiency programs, uh, Singapore Green Building Council, uh, renewable energy projects. Uh, and one particular one, before we get on to the built environment, we did a, a major job for, um, it was called Armstrong Asset Management. They, was, they set up the first 
clean energy fund for Southeast Asia. So I uh, helped them launch their fund, promoted their fund. There's been a lot written about that by me, both in my book, Race for Sustainability, and, and through other, other material. But it was a very successful private sector initiative to get investment going into renewable energy in Asia. Around the same time, I was doing a lot on energy efficiency. In fact, I, I was hired by the National Environment Agency in Singapore, NEA, to conduct their very first energy efficiency campaign to get companies on board to do more to reduce their energy use. Uh, and at the same time, in line with international energy agencies saying energy efficiency is a great way to save energy and to reduce the the impact of, of fossil fuels and, and emissions. So I, I did some work for the government on that program. We also did work for URA on what was called iLight Marina Bay, which was a lighting festival. And people said, well, what's the point of having a lighting festival if it's using so much energy? So we built in an educational program around energy efficiency. So all the exhibitors of light display, lighting projects, had to abide by some very strict sustainability rules. So we were the sustainability consultants for iLight Marina Bay, and we had to work very closely with all the exhibitors to make sure they kept to the rules. And at the same time, we had a educational campaign and we got buildings. I think the first year we did this, we got about 39 buildings around Singapore involved to over the three week period of the iLight Marina Bay program, they had to commit to reduce their energy use in their buildings for that period of time. And, and this was done as a voluntary thing. Uh, when I reported on this a few weeks later, the, one of the bosses from National Environment Agency said, how did you do that? How did you get these people to agree that their buildings would use less energy? And I said, well, it was just sitting down with them and saying, have they tried turning on their, their air conditioning later or having it not, not set so high? Have they looked at turning off the lights on the outside of the building? Have they looked at a number? So we just went through a checklist of things they could do. And the saving was massive. Over that three-week period, it, it certainly showed that every one of those buildings reduced their energy use, uh, something like 25%. Some of them were even higher. Some of them went up to 50% just by taking action on air conditioning, lighting, and, and reducing maybe the use of, of equipment, et cetera. And I, I suppose my approach has always been very practical. How can we help something happen that will make a difference? And currently, um, I've, I've been involved with um, quite a few companies, and we've, we've, we've got a strong focus on the built environment. And I think I, I mentioned to you that we're doing a, an exhibit at the London Design Festival in September. And this incorporates really the design for, we've had architects, engineers involved, coming up with a design for what could well be the ultimate smart, sustainable building. And we're starting with a, or we're, we're modeling, if you like, uh, a six-story shop house, which is very, well, six stories are not so common, but shop houses are very common throughout Southeast Asia. So this is a six-story um, building, um, a shop house style of building, and it will be majority uh, majority major material will be timber because we're really strongly we really strongly believe that timber is the material that of course stores carbon and is not like steel and and concrete which um, embodies carbon and that's very very bad for the 
the climate. So we're incorporating all that. And three of the companies that we've got involved now to support us um, on this project, one is, is called um, Lumani, and that Lumani are involved in more efficient lighting for buildings. And they've shown definitely that they can reduce sometimes up to 50% of the energy use of lighting just by smart meters, smart sensors. Uh, so that's Lumani and they've come on board our project. So we'll be incorporating their system in this model building for the London Design Festival. The other company is, is Ecoline, which do something very interesting because air conditioning in Singapore in particular and other tropical cities is a, is a major user of, of energy. I think I was told some time ago that 70% of a building in Singapore, 70% of their energy is used with air conditioning. So that's massive. So Ecoline have come up with a, with a, a system of, of actually reducing or capturing the heat that comes from the air conditioning units on roofs or outside the buildings. And they're able to reduce the energy use by up to 55%, just by turning that around and effectively reusing that waste, which would normally be waste heat. And of course, that waste heat uh, at the moment goes towards producing a massive heat island effect in Singapore. In fact, Singapore's temperature has increased by an average of two degrees over the last 40 years. The 40 years that, close to 40 years, we've been living in, in Singapore, only about one degree or slightly more than one degree relates to perhaps global warming. But the other one degree relates to the heat island effect. So Singapore has boosted its own uh, temperature through the misuse, if you like, of, of energy by having far too many thousands, millions probably, of air conditioning units uh, spewing out this, this heat, this energy that's wasted into the environment. So that, that's a, a company that is doing some um, amazing work. So they're also incorporated in our project. The other one is an international company called IES, Integrated Environmental Solutions from Scotland. Um, and of course, they will be participating in the COP26 in, in Scotland because they do amazing things in terms of measuring energy performance of buildings, even before the buildings are, uh, are, are produced. So they're working with us on, on how they can analyze um, and establish the, the energy use of the building that, that we're, uh, we're producing the model of. The other thing I should mention that, uh, and I have, I have mentioned timber before, but we really are telling people, and, and fortunately we're now seeing that we're supported by the Singapore Green Building Council and the Building and Construction Authority to address not just the energy uh, consumed wasted uh, in a building, but to deal with the embodied carbon in a building. So that means dealing with the materials that go to make up that building and make sure they, they perform at their best. So timber is, is obviously in a much better position than anything else. And this is being supported now by the Singapore Green Building Council, which is encouraging companies. And I think they've got 20 or 30 companies already that have made a commitment to see how they can address the embodied carbon in buildings. This is a major move because up till now, even the World Green Building Council has focused very much on energy efficiency and maybe the health factors of, of how a building can be greener, but they haven't focused on the embodied carbon, which is a major component. 
uh, in buildings. And of course, buildings amount to globally about 40% of the emissions of greenhouse gases come from buildings, whether they be industrial buildings, homes, offices. So buildings are serious. I mean, that's far more responsible, or we should say irresponsible, for producing those emissions and really doing very little about it. So we're having a strong focus on the built environment and how we can reduce the emissions, not only the operational use of energy, but the buildings itself to make them more sustainable, smarter, uh, more efficient, and also much better for the environment. So you've uh, run about a lot of topics and I wanted to unpack some of those things that you uh, talked about. The way you're describing this project is that you know, two Singaporean companies have come together with the Scottish company and you'll demonstrate a project on a six-story uh, six shop building, right? And what do you expect to happen after that? Or what would you really demonstrate? Very important question. While we're talking about a six-story shop house concept for the first building that we display and show like this, the same principles, the same materials, the same systems can be incorporated in any building. So it really is providing a model that could be replicated, duplicated in any sort of building. Practices for United World College, quite a major um, international uh, college in, in Singapore. And they have been actually setting very high standards for sustainability over the last, I'd say, 20 years. If we adopt the similar principles for the, the next building that we produce on site on our campus, we'll be able to make even more savings, not only in energy use, but embodied carbon, et cetera. So this, this, and we're talking to another company which are very involved in data centers around the world. And they're saying, would it be possible to incorporate the same sort of things in a, in a data center? You just have to look at all these factors and have someone who like IES to look at the, the plan, to look at the, the engineering, to look at the architecture and say, yes, we can incorporate this. Yes, we can put in that. So, I mean, data centers are among the biggest energy users in the world, particularly now that they're getting involved with cryptocurrency as well, which is, is even worse than, worse than notes and coins, to be quite honest. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I suppose we want to achieve is to say, we have at the London Design Festival produced a model, which will all be virtual or digital at this stage, but we, we are actually planning to build a physical model of this as well. And, and the idea is that we will attract some funding so we can actually have a pilot project where we can physically build a structure in Singapore or somewhere else. Where it, it's designed, I suppose, at this stage for an urban setting, replicating the, the systems that we're including, how we can use technology smarter, how we can use materials smarter, and how we can pull all this together. As far as I know, no one in the world has, has put together all these elements in one building to put them to the test. So I suppose we will be in the process testing it, costing it, working out how we can do this in an economical way. How can we model this so it becomes a, a building that can be effectively manufactured, produced in a factory, and then taken to a site and assembled. And then another factor, which is pretty unusual, I don't think anyone has thought of this, it would be effectively demountable or dismantleable um, over after a period of time. So let's say after five years, 
the site that our first project is on, our pilot project is on, they say, okay, we need this site for something else. So we could literally take that building down, move it somewhere else, or take the parts down and put it together in, a, in, another, in another structure. So the, the, there's some far-reaching implications from this. It's really a, a totally new approach to buildings. Great. So what you hope to demonstrate is the whole building, you know, the material, uh, including the embedded carbon and embedded uh, emissions in the material, to the air conditioning, to the lighting, uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, you know, concluding that uh, to the end of cycle, so you can actually dismantle it uh, in an environmentally friendly manner. Um, as well as, you know, to be honest, the way I'm understanding this is also constructed because you know you construct it in a controlled factory environment and bring it on site. So hopefully, you know, you'd um, save money and energy and of course emissions. Uh, and you know, uh, you know, of, of course, this is uh, going to be very interesting and wish you the very best. Um, you've already started talking about a few companies that are uh, in energy efficiency in, in, in uh, Singapore. But, uh, you know, can you elaborate a little bit more on how they're using smart systems like, you know, sensors and data analytics and smart grid systems? We hear so much about it from Singapore. Sure. Um, and one company we got involved with very early on, um, they were Australian, an Australian company um, now called Invisi. They originally, I think, were called Carbon Systems um, and, and run by a gentleman from originally from South Africa, David Solsky, and they had what was effectively at that stage a, a carbon and energy management platform. So they could, through the use of, of sensors and meters in a building uh, or in a number of buildings, actually, there were a few systems like this that were going around Australia at the time. This is um, early 2010, 2011, around that time. Um, and, and some of them were better than others. So Invisi has gone on to do some amazingly good work. So we got them started in Singapore and I went with David to meet some, um, well, both government agencies as well as um, some larger companies to convince them that this is what they needed. So, but it, it also it was, was very dependent on having good meters because up till, up till then, um, most people were just relying on their on their energy bill arriving every month and somewhere, but there were no measurement systems in place, no sensors, et cetera. So we really introduced that to Singapore and others started doing something similar. We got um, Invisi to have someone based in Singapore full time, who was also doing some work in the region. Uh, and really that principle of, of measuring and managing your energy use on site as well as being able to see on a on a platform on a screen where that energy and likewise where things are going wrong. So straight away on that on that screen on that platform, you can see there's a problem somewhere because there's leakage. But it didn't just measure energy; it also measured carbon. It also managed water. It could also manage waste, and it also helped companies to develop their sustainability reporting because it gave you the very necessary uh, data points that you that you needed. Another company we did some work with here was um, called BBP, Barguest Building Performance. And they did some amazing work on uh, energy efficiency, particularly addressing the wastage from chillers, air conditioning chillers. And there was one particular project that I, I wrote up for them. Um, 
it was a, a factory called Lumalades. Lumalades produced, they used to be run by, owned by Philips. Um, they produced the LED lights. So there was the, it was a big factory. So BBP um, was asked to come in and see what they could do to improve the efficiency of the factory. So BBP addressed the chillers and they were able to make adjustments to the system, to the wiring, to the, the pipes, to the, the engineering aspects of the chillers without replacing the chillers, managed to improve the performance of the chillers to such extent they saved 35% of the energy use of that building, largely through improving the performance of, of the chillers. That led to uh, Lumileds as a factory to be the first manufacturing building in Singapore to win a green mark platinum. It happened to be a cover story in the Singapore Engineer magazine that I helped produce as well. Another company that I worked with and helped promote for some time was called Teal, T-E-A-L-E. -E. Uh, and Teal was run by a young Australian. Um, they started, again, um, re using technology to better measure and manage energy use in a building. They also looked at refrigeration and the use or the, uh, the, or the wastage of the refrigerants. So there are a number of companies that we've worked with. In fact, I, I don't think in the last uh, uh, 12 years I've worked for any company that hasn't had some involvement in the environment or sustainability. So there's, there's some good examples. Uh, fantastic. Uh, I, I'm wondering how ubiquitous it is. And of course, this is all COVID time, but you know, things, this COVID will pass. And one day I'll be in Orchard Street and you know, popping into Starbucks and getting, grabbing my coffee and then walking down Orchard Street and looking up to all the malls. Can I reasonably expect that almost all those huge office buildings in the malls that are there in Singapore, Orchard Street, have a carbon management and energy management, water management system, and they're all tracking and having the sustainability reports, or do you think there's a long way to go there? I think there is a long way to go. I mean, the, the Building and Construction Authority ha has, and it's, it's the law in Singapore, that every building, existing buildings, must do more to show improvements in their energy use again energy use primarily. And of course, existing buildings, we can't take, take them, well, we can take them down. Some of them are being demolished, but even when they're being replaced, the building that's replacing the, the old buildings are not necessarily as well constructed or, and, and sustainably uh, constructed or designed uh, as, as we would like them to be. So there is a change, but as I said, the, the Singapore Green Building Council and the Building Construction Authority now are saying, you must consider embodied energy. You must consider these factors in your new building and you must see wherever you can, how you can introduce some of these measures into your existing building. And you know, sometimes it can be done by obviously doing some uh, renovation or restoration work inside a building. Uh, you can reduce some of that embodied carbon obviously with some of the materials you use, but th that's, that's a challenge. But I think even if, Every new building in Singapore, and there are new ones going up all the time. I, I live in an area and there are two brand new condominiums um, being built right alongside us. Um, and, and I doubt very much whether they have incorporated as much as they could. Right. But one thing about Singapore is that it's considered to be a living lab of smart city innovation. Can you tell us a little bit about how does the ecosystem work in Singapore? 
Sure, um, and uh, you know, the government plays a, a very important role, and and uh, you know it can be a good thing. And I think now the Singapore government is really on top of sustainability, dealing with the built environment, dealing with cars, dealing with um, the heat island effect. But it still takes a long time, and they really need to have some good commercial examples, some case studies to say it worked for this company. I mean, there are some companies that are, are doing better than most here, like CDL is, is setting a very good example. But still, you've got to remember that Singapore is, is a petrochemical hub, one of the biggest oil refining hubs in the world. So we're still, we're still in the business of producing fossil fuels, producing petrochemicals that are used for plastic production. So while the government is committed to, to make changes and is committed to sustainability, committed to reducing its emissions, so Singapore is doing many things right, but still has some underlying economic reasons for not making some significant changes. Still, it's incremental differences instead of transformational differences. Right. Thank you. I wanted to go back to two things which you have already talked about. One is uh, in a, the, the example that you gave about uh, convincing companies to reduce their energy usage. I found that particularly fascinating. I mean, world over, you know, but the world is urbanizing very fast. And uh, world over, we know that to help uh, commercial building owners and tenants to move to energy efficient uh, measures is often an issue of behavioral change, which requires what you call, what you would probably call marketing communications. So, you know, if you had to advise let's say younger colleague today, let's say in, in a city like Nairobi or, or Lagos to help commercial buildings uh, adopt more energy efficient measures. And given your experience of doing this many times over in Singapore, what did you say? And I don't know Nairobi and I don't know some of these other places that are, that are more distant from Singapore, but most of the countries in Southeast Asia, for example, and in India and in China are well aware of what they need to do, but there's this reluctance to do. It's going to cost us. Nine times out of 10, these measures that are being taken are not going to cost you anything other than maybe paying the consultant to advise you on this or pay, paying BBP out of the energy that you save. And that's what a principle that is developing as well, that, um, and BBP and a few others are doing something very similar. They'll say, okay, you don't pay us anything up front, but we will find a way after we've done an initial survey where we can save you potentially between 20 and 30% of your energy use through your, your chiller operation. And, and we won't be paid until you implement the system and then you pay us out of the savings. So if you're saving 20% of your energy and that's what you're, you're, you're paying, you pay us, let's say 5% of your savings. So it's, it's a structured uh, business and I and I think that that will work in, in practically any country or any city in the world if it's done in the right way and BBP aren't the only ones doing this I'm sure there are many others around and this is where I think the the green building councils um, building construction authorities government agencies need to make sure companies are aware of what can be done I mean in in the work we did with NEA, National Environment Agency on Energy Efficiency, over a two-year period, we were publishing and sharing case studies, examples of where companies had achieved something. 
I remember we talked about the Hyatt Hotel in Singapore that had gone through an amazing program of energy efficiency program. We talked about examples of, of CDL, for example, in Singapore. We also gave overseas examples. There was an amazing study done uh, by the Rocky Mountain Institute in America where they were involved in the Empire State Building. And it didn't take re knocking that building down and building it again. It took installing smart glass uh, on the on the walls and included better um, energy efficiency systems right through the whole building. 100 and what is it, 150 years old, the Empire State Building. They achieved remarkable energy efficiency, uh, energy saving through what they were able to do. That's a classic case that I've reported on and, and that came from the Rocky Mountain Institute that was directly involved. So governments, city governments, national governments could do far more to say there are solutions, there is help at hand, there are companies that can help you measure and manage your energy, let's say, but they can also help you manage your design of your building, looking at the right materials, looking at the, the way the building can be better built, better designed and built to achieve much more. Right, uh, thank you. I, I will end on a personal note again. And yesterday, uh, the IPCC report came out. You know, in your long career, have you ever felt moments of frustration? But, you know, obviously I know you for some time and I know that you keep your hopes alive, right? Uh, you know, what would be your, your advice to me? I'm, I'm say 20 years younger than you and hoping to you know, remain as active as you are. Uh, so what would be your advice to me? Well, part of me would say, give up, Sanjoy. <laughs> give, <laughs> give up altogether, it's hopeless. No, so I, I won't say that, but there are times certainly where I get frustrated, but I get frustrated more because I see this latest IPCC report and I think a lot of the things I'm saying in that report, I was saying 12 years ago in my book that came out in 2009. Sure, there's been more examples, there have been uh, more um, regular big events of, of extreme weather, but we were having them then. I was writing about forest fires in, in uh, California that could be seen from space. I was, I was writing about the, 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 the cost of implementing climate change measures. Even then, the amazing report by Nicholas Stern, uh, which came out in 2006, where he said, the cost of doing nothing was far greater than the cost of doing something. And just like, okay, if we'd allowed the whole coronavirus pandemic, if we hadn't introduced measures to help the economy in different, every country in the world, if we haven't introduced vaccination, free vaccination, if we hadn't introduced these things, it would be even worse. So look at that from a climate change perspective. Unless we start addressing these things and paying to address them now, it's going to be even more expensive to address them in 20 years' time or 30 years' time. In fact, it's going to be hopeless. So I, I suppose personally, I, I do weigh this up. I remain optimistic. I mean, I'm, I turned 77 in, in October this year, but I'm not giving up. There's probably going to be at least another book uh, coming out on this subject or on related subjects. Because to be quite honest, the same messages that were in my book in 2009 are still relevant. And every IPCC report or every COP, COP26 or 25 or 24 conference says a lot of the same things. So the frustration is that it's a bit like 
banging your head against a brick wall. I'm saying the same things over and over again, and I'm trying to dress it a little bit differently. So I'm still going. I still believe that there's more for me to do, and I still believe that eventually we'll get it right. But it probably won't be in my lifetime where I see any significant improvement uh, in, in the environment or in the atmosphere. Uh, thank you very much, Ken. Thank you.